Hi, everyone. Before we get to the show, I wanted to let you know about my new on-demand course for discovering and developing core values. On this podcast, I've chatted with many guests about the importance of incorporating core values in their life and career. High achievers will tell you it's the key to many of their accomplishments. I get asked a lot by readers of Friday Forward and Elevate about the best way to do this, and I haven't had an easy answer to date. This course is that way. The course walks you through a tested method to help you brainstorm, refine, and test a list of personal core values. The course can be completed in about an hour, but it will prompt plenty of reflection and work in the days, weeks, and months that follow. Start discovering the principles that matter most to you and get better alignment. You can learn more about the course at corevaluescourse.com. I hope you check it out at corevaluescourse.com. Now let's get to the episode. I want to do this. I can afford to do this. This is going to be fun. Plus, I mean, this is about reinventing personal transportation to make it cleaner, safer, and more enjoyable for everyone. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from William Pollard. Learning and innovation go hand in hand. The arrogance of success is to think that what you did yesterday will be sufficient for tomorrow. Our guest today, Aisha Evans, is one of the world's key drivers of innovation. She's the CEO of Zooks, a company dedicated to perfecting and producing self-driving zero-emission vehicles. Before joining the company in early 2019, she also held several leadership roles at Intel Corporation, including most recently as the Chief Strategy Officer. She's a member of the George Washington University Engineering Hall of Fame and was named to Business Insider's list of 100 people transforming business. Aisha, welcome. It's great to have you on the Elevate podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. So, I, you know, I always find it helpful to focus uh, on the beginning. I know you studied computer engineering in college, and that obviously became a focal point of your career. Were you always passionate about engineering, uh, even when you were a kid? Yes, I was. Uh, I grew up bouncing back between uh, Senegal, West Africa, and Paris, uh, France. And so you could definitely, uh, just as a young kid, intuitively, you could understand uh, what happens when you have a lot of technology versus what happens when you don't. And then um, how it helps you solve problems and sort of advance things both for yourself and for society. So at a very young age, especially when it came to communicating with uh, my friends when I was in, uh, in Paris, and they the others were in Senegal or vice versa. I had to solve sort of uh, getting on the phone with them. And very early on, I latched on. And then computers came later as you just uh, saw what that was going to make possible. So was that a job from one of your parents that you were bouncing? But, but that's not usually a place people bounce back and forth. It was that by year, by summer, by winter? What, oh, no, what? it was chunks of years. <laughs> it was chunks of years. Uh, my dad was in the telecommunication industry. Got it in France. And so uh, very early on, I went to Paris. And then, you know, as a young teenager, I was like, well, this is not fair. All my other siblings are in Senegal. How come I don't, uh, I don't get to be where, you know, there's a beach and all that good stuff. So I went back, but then I was a little bit of a turbulent child. And my dad was like, no, you're going back to Paris and uh, finishing uh, high school there. And then, uh, you know, everything happened from then. And so where did you go to university? Oh, I went to uh, Janson de Sailly. Uh, which is uh, essentially a school that uh, specializes in uh, in STEM. And then uh, from there, there was a long story like uh, with my dad because, uh, you know, I'm a young Senegalese girl and uh, 
really with French, I don't know, ways of operating, you know, parties, drinking and all of that good stuff. And he didn't quite like the, the result. And he started sort of, uh, you know, uh, being a lot stricter on uh, expectations and uh, returning back to uh, some of the things that he should have thought about before we started the journey. So from there, I wanted to study uh, computer engineering anyway. And back then in France, you could do either electrical engineering with a, with a concentration in, uh, in computers or some other core engineering, but there wasn't really yet uh, sort of a concentration in engineering. So I argued and uh, fought uh, to go to, uh, to the US, which was leading in this field. And his only condition was that uh, it would be in Washington, D.C., where he had a lot of uh, friends who supposedly would watch over me. Would <laughs> keep an eye on you. <laughs> so you went there, and then what was your first uh, real job? Oh, my gosh. My first real job was uh, I actually, oh, my gosh, I love cooking. This is just something I love to do. And um, because of the fact that I wasn't living in Senegal most of the time, I learned to cook. Uh, Senegalese food. And let's just say I confuse my love of cooking and running a restaurant. Uh, DC is a very uh, cosmopolitan area. And so uh, I decided to open a West African restaurant. With, wow. uh, that's not the answer I was expecting. Well, that's what I did, uh, which in retrospect is totally crazy. But you know what? I'm really glad I did it. We did it for only a year. I learned a ton about uh, leadership, motivating people. You know, when you have a restaurant, you think about uh, the food, but the most, some of the people who are the most important are your dishwasher yeah. in terms of turning dishes. And as well as uh, your customer interface is actually controlled by your weight staff. So I learned a ton about teamwork and uh, inspiring and motivating people. It's interesting. The last person I interviewed, very similar, started a restaurant. Uh, he <laughs> lost a lot of money on it. Um, but it's never... It doesn't seem like the the food is not the issue for restaurants and most of them. In fact, it's a little bit like the the e myth. I think a lot of the people that started are, are are good at the food, but there's a real there's a business behind it. There's you know making sure the profit margins and the people and all that stuff. And and my guess is that has more to do with success or failure than restaurants than than the food being good or not. Absolutely, that and the alcohol because that's yes. the highest <laughs> that is more. the profit margin. Yeah. Yes. So absolutely. I mean, we, we did it for you. We were very lucky. We didn't lose uh, money. We didn't make money either. But the other thing it did is, um, how shall I say this nicely? It put in focus what was important to me and what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And same for, for my husband. My in-laws uh, uh, tease me about it. And they're like, wow, we must have really liked you because you show up in our lives. You know, they're American. And he was in business. And he's like, you're not going to do what? A restaurant? Like while you're going to school, this is totally crazy. But glad you got it out of your system, took your learnings, <laughs> and uh, move on, moved on. There's that old joke. Uh, I, I'm not going to get it right, but it's something. How, how do you get a million dollars with a restaurant? Have you heard this one? I've heard. Yes. Start, <laughs> is it get? I, I was trying to think the wordplay. Start with two million because it's not make. It must be. How do you have a? How do you have a million dollar restaurant? It must be to start with a two million dollar restaurant. I think that that yeah. was it. Yeah, but but there are a lot of learning. So one of the other things I, I also saw is that you you had sort of two passions, right? You had the math science side, but then also philosophy and literature. That would cause debates among people separately. How how do you integrate those sort of two in your in your career? Well, I mean, it's uh, first of all when I look at uh, being in Silicon Valley and working on high tech, uh, I'm not here to do happy engineering. Yes, obviously, when <laughs> things work and super hard things happen, I'm extremely thrilled. But at the end of the day, building the technology for a purpose so that you are making an impact in uh, in society. And for me, the money is not an input; it's an output. Yeah. 
that's really key. The second thing is uh, I have this joke that uh, you want scientists and engineers and uh, technicians to show up at work, but what first shows up is people. And as soon as you have more than two, there's drama and there are things you need to organize. Uh, last but not least, you know, it's funny to me that this is uh, interesting to people. When you are in uh, in the French educational system, even though you're, you choose a math and physics uh, concentration, uh, literature, a second and third language, as well as philosophy, your last year of high school are mandatory. And a lot of the philosophers that you study have a very strong foundation in math. I mean, Pascal, Descartes, uh, the Greek uh, philosophers. So I never really thought this was something uh, different or bizarre. I thought that's just the way it was. But um, uh, now I accept that people see it as one of the other. But I think the perfect blend is uh, uh, to have that logical view. I tell my daughter, I don't care if you become an engineer or not, even if you're a lawyer, being good at math will help you forever. Well, yeah, philosophy is really a framework, right? In, in some ways, it has many similar, right? It's more similar than we think. Exactly. And in literature, I mean, uh, you remember when they first teach you to write? You know, you have to have an abstract and you have to yeah. have a flow. And what's your conclusion? What are your main takeaways? How do you elaborate? Well, I mean, that that's a logical framework. Yeah. And look, we could use a little more philosophy in the world these <laughs> these days. Isn't that the truth? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it, you know, it's we can get into this later. I don't, but one of the things that that's been really interesting to me about this past year in the U.S. is that I always thought philosophy and values then determined sort of politics and beliefs, but somehow it seems to have gotten flipped where political lines are now determining philosophy and beliefs and therefore philosophy and beliefs are radically shifting based on the lines. And we seem upside down in this space where people are having a hard time kind of figuring out what their true Norths are. I totally agree. Winning and losing also, I think, uh, has yeah. confused people because uh, again, that's an outcome and sometimes you win and sometimes you lose, but uh, starting with values, core belief, and you know, there are a lot of us in the nation, right? Different brains. So, um, having conversations so that uh, you start with the common ground and then you go from there is uh, is really key. We're totally upside down. I do, by the way, have a theory too that uh, the, the pandemic also is not helping us in some ways because I yeah. think some of the social activities and some of uh, the entertainment activities that force us into conversation like sports and so on are also not here. But you know what? I'm an optimist. I think this is just a little cycle we're, uh, we're going through. And uh, we're going to get unconfused and uh, have the hard conversations over time and uh, figure this out. But this is where logic, uh, and this is where I think engineers, you know, and logic-oriented people must drive them crazy. I, I mean, one of the things I think is incumbent on anyone is like, they have to, let's just use team as an analogy, you know, whether it's work, sports, business, politics, like, you have to be able to say when someone on your team is is wrong, <laughs> right? That was a bad throw. That was a bad decision. That thing that you're saying is not true. It doesn't matter if we're on the same team. I, I know we've gotten to this world of alternative facts, but that, and particularly someone who studies philosophy and logic and math, I mean, that that to me is one of the biggest dangers of, of not being able to have that dialogue because someone is on, you know, on your side of the line. I totally agree. I am... Um... We read uh, Plato, The Republic, quite a few times over the last four years. And I wish that people could uh, pay attention uh, to the conversation between uh, Socrates and, uh, and Plato. 
uh, when uh, essentially he's wrong, Socrates is uh, wrongly uh, accused and Plato is telling him about how, you know, how to escape and how to figure it out. And he's like, you know, I, I never questioned when they were uh, condemning other people and asking them to uh, drink the cigar, which is basically a death penalty. So yeah. why should I cheat now? And that, that little conversation, it's only huh. a few pages, is quite remarkable. At some point, you have to elevate uh, beyond your own person and uh, beyond your own like selfishness and look at uh, what happens. And I think one of the things in sports is that uh, you can't really, I mean, you can see the difference between the athletes that just worried about winning themselves yeah. versus uh, the athletes that worried about um, the team winning and therefore achieving greatness. And I know uh, Jordan, for example, is a very controversial person, but, you know, at some point he was scoring, what, over 60 points on average and like crazy and that uh, wasn't and winning. So, yeah. Now, by the way, he could win personally. Right, still right. The team good. wasn't winning championships. Yeah. Exactly. And in the end, by also sacrificing and, and kind of uh, coordinating the team, the team ended up winning and they created also a dynasty because that's a little secret that nobody else uh, could figure out. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, you know, this reminds me of a similar discussion that we had in our company uh, with some leadership about feedback. And we collect a lot of feedback and we're looking at it. And one of our People saying, look, I here are two people in this thing who said the exact opposite thing, like polar opposite. I want, you know, I like this. I, I don't like this. And and we were talking about it, we, you know, it, and, and we realized, like, again, to the team player, I said, it's interesting. 
if I think, look at feedback, I think there's feedback where people are generally trying to find a systemic thing that can be improved. And then there's feedback where people are saying, here's how I would like, I would like everything <laughs> to be organized around, <laughs> around me. And I was like, I think we need to distinguish between both of those. Like there's, there's selfish feedback and then there's very team oriented feedback. Very well said. Very well said. And also, I always tell people uh, how the feedback is delivered is also important. We're in the middle of the, the performance review cycle right now at our company. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I tell people when you attack somebody, they will automatically go into a defense mode. That's yeah. just the way it is. So uh, is it delivered with love? Is it delivered with uh, with uh, purpose? And And by the way, also... Too much feedback probably like uh, is too much. So look at rhythm and uh, and cadence. Now, having said that, it's hard. I mean, somebody on my team who I thought everything was fine, you know, gave me um, a wood shampoo and a half. It was very pointed, right? He had yeah. point one, point two, point three. Now there was a lot of there were a lot of compliments there too, which by the way, I have to remind myself of that. And yeah, we set up a one on one, and I said, okay. Thank you, first of all. I really Right, that is the key. Right. If you don't say that, you will never get the feedback again. Exactly. Yeah. So I said, thank you. I really appreciate it. And I said, okay, I read it and I just wanted to walk for you to walk me through it so that I, I understand and also give me a couple of examples that jump to mind because there's something that crystallized it for you. And it's hard. You have to sit there. You have to listen. Uh, you have to synthesize. Uh, you can't go into, uh, well, but this and this and that and and so on and so forth because otherwise you're not going to get it again and uh if somebody thinks that i would rather they tell me because by the way if they don't tell you they act upon it anyway so yeah. it was fascinating it always is it's better to know so jumping back to your journey when you joined intel it was already one of the world's biggest companies i think there's over 100,000 people so what was it like stepping into such a massive organization? And then you worked your way up to the chief strategy officer. So what what did that journey look like? So first, I, it's funny. I joined that company. Um, so I was uh, working in wireless, uh, living in Portland, Oregon, and commuting a lot to Irvine, California. Yeah. And then uh, I decided I wanted to have a child, so became pregnant. And I knew that the commuting to Irvine and uh, also traveling internationally because of the factories and the different design centers, that just doesn't work. That wasn't going to work. I was also on the older side for having a child. And so I wanted to enjoy the experience. So I left that role thinking, I'm going to have the baby, take a year off and be done. The fact that I live in Portland, Oregon, Intel started calling me. Initially, I said no, because I'm, I'm taking time off. And then they said, no, we're, we're doing this wireless thing and uh, we really need folks like you. So you can come in and uh, sort of take it easy for the first year and then we'll figure out how to accelerate. And one of the, they were working on a technology that as a wireless technologist, I was like, well, the technology itself is brilliant, uh, WiMAX, but uh, when you look at the business model and when you look at the ecosystem, it sounds problematic. So I went in, in a reduced capacity, I think I said nine to four, no international travel and no more than uh, one quarterly trip to California for the first year. And then I said, look, make sure you, you know this is what you want because I may come in and tell you, yeah, this is brilliant and let's continue, but it is possible that I will always say this is brilliant, but what it's going to take to make it work doesn't really make sense. And so I came in and this is important. At Intel, the machine and most of the people were working at that time on CPU and memory and semiconductor 
physics. And I came in basically for wireless, which was a sideshow. And that meant that I got the opportunity and the exposure to be in the middle of very key decisions and very key conversations very early. And six months in, uh, I went to sort of the top three in the company and said, look, it's going to be very hard to make this technology uh, adopted, uh, both from a technology standpoint, but also from an ecosystem standpoint, carriers, devices, and so on, as well as just from a capital standpoint, because it was against the three, or relative to the 3GPP ecosystem. This required everyone to upgrade everything to make it work, right? More than upgrade, switch. Uh, right, switch, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, worldwide? I mean, I'm like, seriously? But you again, back to feedback, you have to remember that when you tell somebody something that they probably don't want to hear, you also have to kind of create a platform for, but what's really going on, right? To sort of figure it out together. So I said, now, having said that, you know, you all are very smart. This company wouldn't be this successful without um, without having a really good leadership and good execution. What exactly is the problem statement we're trying to solve? And so once we had those conversations, I was like, oh, okay. And basically they were trying to solve for the fact that compute and communications were converging. And you can see that obviously with the internet and mobile and and what have you. And I said, oh, okay, well, there are other ways to solve that. And so that's how my career started. And we devised a a strategy in steps. And then they said, yeah, but you talk a good game. We don't know if you can execute. So uh, we we have this issue over there uh, in Wi-Fi. Go solve that. Uh, That was for, for laptops and also for mo- it was starting to penetrate mobile. And then we'll see how you lead team because it was, I was just six months in. Did you think that they were trying to shut you up or saying, or that they thought no, you'd I solve think, it? No, I think they will literally try to say, because a lot of people talk a good yeah. game, but can they actually make something happen? Yeah. And I was new, young, and didn't come from that industry. So now <laughs> along the way, I find out that uh, Wi-Fi, the Wi-Fi engineering and uh, sort of center of gravity is actually in Israel. Yeah, And you cannot remote control an Israeli team. That's just not going to work. So eventually we ended up moving to Israel. Uh, by that time I had my second child. And so uh, my husband, I, and my two kids moved to Israel for uh, a couple of years and worked with the team there. And again, something that really accelerated my career. You come into a new team, a new country, different culture. Uh, I, oh, yeah, I remember when you left, you were telling me, because this all came up in a thing about the language course that you had to do where you got yes. sent, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, because I, I wanted, uh, I knew I wasn't going to live in Israel forever. Yeah. So speed, time, and urgency were of the essence. And so I wanted to belong to the team. And so uh, I was like, uh, they were like, well, bodyguards. This. I said, I don't want any of this. I want to live in a normal house. We'll drive our own cars. Now, I knew there was security somewhere, but whatever. And then I was looking for ways to quickly, quickly get into the psyche of the team. And part of it also for like, uh, not just in in terms of getting their following, but also establishing myself. Yes, I had this conference room um, in IDC 7214. And uh, the Hebrew teacher would come in every day from 12 to 1. I would leave the door open so they knew I was learning Hebrew. And so if you were on my side, that was discretionary energy I was earning. And if you were not on my side, I was like, okay, no, you're not going to be able to break out into the meeting in uh, in Hebrew and do a little sideshow. That's just not happening. So did that for a couple of years and still retain, you know, a good amount of it. I enjoy that language. It's another language that's constructed in a way that's very logical. And plus, because uh, of Aliyah, meaning for Jewish people returning to, to Israel, they have a very good teaching system to quickly uh, get you to pick up the language. How many languages do you speak now? 
<laughs> well, I speak uh, English and French very fluently. Uh, I'm, I'm not as fluent anymore in German, but uh, enough, I've retained enough. And then same with Hebrew and then Wolof, which is uh, sort of the main language in, uh, in Senegal. Got it. I figured you'd have Italian and Spanish and stuff in there. In there too. <laughs> no, I, I, my, my kids actually take Spanish, but no, Spanish and Italian uh, were not. Uh, I don't know why I, I did not pick those up. Yeah. So then, uh, yeah, uh, did that, did well, uh, came back. And then from there, inherited the entire wireless portfolio and sort of always you know, I was sort of a change agent. One of the things that I think is important in your career is to have what I call uh, freedom of thinking, of choices, and be brave, and not just become, as you're climbing up, become a, a, a prisoner, so ambitious that you're a prisoner of the next uh, promotion or the next assignment, because then you start basically not making the right decisions. Right. And uh, speaking up and making it very, people knew that I love Intel. I still love it to this day. And uh, yeah, just uh, had my share of successes. By the way, had some spectacular failures too and owned them and uh, talked about what I learned from them. You don't learn much from success. You, you learn a lot more from when things don't go well. And then at some point uh, they were like, um, we had a couple of CEOs. Uh, the first one was more of a sort of manufacturing and uh, semiconductor person. And he was like, look, you're, uh, you can help me with the product and R&D side, which is how I went into the, the chief strategy role because I had been in wireless my whole career. And then, and then you got to that role. What was the opportunity at Zooks that made you uh, be willing to leave Intel where you had now built your whole career? <laughs> so first, uh, I had a couple of um, times where I almost left Intel and then yeah. didn't. And one was pretty traumatic and, and complicated because I had actually accepted the position and then reneged, which really I've done only once and I hope I never, have, never do it yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> and that forced me to kind of have a one-on-one -on -one with myself and kind of think about what do I want? What's important to me? And also understanding that, uh, you know, whether I like it or not, it doesn't matter. But what people see is uh, an African-American female in high tech and there aren't a lot of us. And so you get a lot of calls. And so uh, I decided I was not going to leave Intel to go to another big company. That just yeah. didn't make sense. Right. And in those cases, the devil you know is better than the devil exactly. you know. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, and don't get confused. It's the same everywhere. Human beings <laughs> are pretty predictable in their behaviors. Yeah. And so uh, then uh, uh, folks like Jim Citrin at Spencer Stewart, who is, you know, a friend of ours, uh, basically said, yeah, but what's important? Like, what would you pick up the phone for? So I said, look, something that's worthy and that has an impact on society. Uh, something that's in the private sector, because I, you know, the pressure of being uh, in the public sector and travel and earnings and the time it takes away from your family, you don't, you actually belong to the company and to, to the public. And then a founder or founders that uh, uh, were working on that worthy mission, but that needed somebody like me to get to market and to get to scale, because that's how they felt in their heart, not because the board said you need a babysitter, basically. Yeah. And then it needed to be in uh, in Silicon Valley, and there had I had to fall in work love with the team and the mission. And so when I got the call from Zooks, at first I actually said no uh, because I was like, "Ooh, sounds messy and complicated, and wow, super, just super complex." But then a few friends uh, convinced me to talk to them. So I talked to some board members, and then I talked to the founder or co-founder. It ticked all the boxes, and I, you know, when you get that thing in your tummy, you're like, "This is yeah. exciting." 
I want to do this. I can afford to do this. This is going to be fun. Plus, I mean, this is about reinventing personal transportation to make it cleaner, safer, and more enjoyable for everyone. It's a focus on cities. So the environment, you know, we lose almost 40,000 uh, people in a crash. Yeah. And also economic access, right? And I don't know about you, but nobody's really in the mood to pay a lot of taxes to redesign the cities completely. And so when I looked at all of this, I was like, yeah, game on, let's go. So you stepped into an interesting situation, right? You stepped in for a founder, taking over for a founder and building from an existing culture. Was that a challenge? Was what you wanted to do different? Um, How did that sort of play out in your early days? It was definitely a challenge. I mean, when you have two co-founders that did something that's, I mean, to me, it's still amazing that uh, in 2014, they say, okay, this is what we want to do, like creating autonomy from the ground up, which includes, you know, building a vehicle, building an AI stack, uh, really understanding also a tight business model. And the company had been extremely consistent in pursuing this mission. So uh, it was difficult because uh, the other co-founder is, uh, you know, this was his vision and he did a fantastic job to get to this point. So how I sort of uh, talk to myself, I I do a lot of one-on-ones with myself. I was like, okay, we have to be super grateful and respectful of the past, meaning you know, he got us up to this point. Now, we have to be realistic about the present, i.e. what's really going on in order to be optimistic about the, the future and go execute to that. So uh, I've always been, uh, you know, classy and grateful for what he's done. It was an awesome vision. And then the second co-founder, obviously, I had talked to him for hours and hours and hours before taking the role. So I knew we could work very well uh, together. And then uh, really sat down and say, okay, how, what do we need to do to get there? And, you know, also be uh, a little bit kind. The AV industry lives, I mean, it's like hyper hype cycles or hyper depression cycles. Some years yeah. it's like, oh, oh it's going to be like tomorrow morning and it's all going to get done. And, and sometimes it's like, oh, it's never going to happen. So sort of finding, uh, setting the compass. And one of the things that uh, I helped institute was this notion of, look, this is a big inflection point, right? You have to think about from horse and carriage to automobile. You have to think about uh, uh, the aviation industry. It's going to take a while. And so this notion of tiny, small, medium, large, and then you get to scale. And by the way, then you rinse and repeat city after city, country after country. And sort of establishing that and saying, that's okay. And by the way, if that's not for you, that's okay too. That was step one. Step two was to have another one-on-one with myself and understand that most of the teams that I had led, I basically built them from scratch or grew up with them. This was a team that was being handed over. And so I needed to slow down, listen, learn, establish relationships. My first all hand, somebody said, well, you know, what's your goal? Number one goal for the first 90 days, which is a very standard question. And I said, actually, I'll tell you what my goal is for the first year. At the end of the first year, I would love to be in a situation when you all don't remember if I was here at the beginning or when exactly I joined the journey, because I want to be one of you. And then I had to learn to slow down. Some things were very obvious, probably three months in, it's a startup, right? And it's a, it's a capital intensive startup and it's building something that's ambitious. And so it was very prototypy. Well, from that to going to market, you, you need repeatability, you need systems, uh, you need infrastructure, you need tools. 
Last but not least, because you're bringing such a variety of skills together, you sort of had the vehicle people, you had the sensors and compute people, and then you had sort of the software and autonomy stack people. And there were a few one-on-ones where people were like, well, we have to tell you, well, three actually, we're just three different companies trying to uh, do something together. And I was like, no, uh, this is a vertical integration. So everybody gets an A or everybody gets an F. There's no in-between. Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their podcast. hbr.org is your go-to for leadership and business management articles. A recent favorite is Stop Eliminating Perfectly Good Candidates by Asking Them the Wrong Questions. Then there are other world-famous case studies, which premium subscribers can access as well. HBR produces a number of leading podcasts from HBR on leadership to my favorite, the HBR IdeaCast podcast. A subscription to HBR also includes access to videos, the big idea, HBR magazine, and a wide variety of newsletters. While much of the Harvard Business Review content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash elevate. I, I did a disservice, I think, to the listeners, actually. Were you at 10,000 feet? And maybe this is at the time, and then we can talk about where you've taken it. But what what was Zooks created to do and which part of the market? Right? And people know a lot about, you know, Tesla's push towards, you know, self-driving cars. But I think the focus was on a little bit of a different piece of the of the market. So we, we used to just kind of put the backwards machine on there and say, why was Zook started and what was the strategy and how did it differ from all the other people out there pursuing aspects of uh, autonomous driving? Thank you for asking that. So look, we're all about autonomous mobility. We We don't sell you a vehicle, we sell you a ride. And um, especially in um, in cities where you know parking, uh, real estate is uh, is wasted. It's very congested, and frankly, you can't really add a lot of roads. Or, and also, it's really bad for the environment. So what happens is, um, you say, "I want to go from point A to point B," as you do today with an Uber or Lyft, and um, you have a Zooks app, and you say, "I want to go from point A to point B," and this vehicle shows up. It's uh, like um, 
carriage seating. It's bi-directional. It's uh, when you're in it, you're being transported. You don't even think about driving because AI is doing the driving. So it, it shows up, uh, sliding doors, you step in, sit down, buckle up, plenty of room, uh, same treatment for all four passengers. And it takes you to point B. When you get to point B, doors open, you step off and it goes and picks up. So it's basically autonomous mobility on demand. Today, you go into the passenger car of somebody who's driving you, which by the right. way is expensive and extravagant. And we're trying to make this uh, autonomous and super efficient. So you're building, I mean, talk about a big ambition. You're both building Uber or the equivalent, but also the vehicles, <laughs> whereas Uber used other people's vehicle, the vehicle to actually deliver the, the service too. That's exactly right. It's a vehicle that drives itself. And uh, it only has one purpose. By the way, it's electric, obviously. Right. And uh, it has only one purpose, which is to move you around cities. And I mean, today, when you have a passenger car, uh, you use it 4% of the time and 96% of the time it's sitting and depreciating. And we think that in cities, especially as you move forward uh, over the next few decades, that just doesn't make sense. And so we sell you a ride and our fleet of vehicles will be placed and running around and picking up and dropping off, picking up and dropping off. And I'm going to have you also just comment on one of my pet peeves, which I'm guessing is one of your pet peeves too, because you said it uses AI. Will you explain to the lay person, because the the over and misuse of AI in the world versus AI versus machine learning versus you just have a little algorithm. Um, can you explain the difference for people? Because I, I think you are truly using AI, but I think it is misused 90% of the time. That is absolutely correct. So on the, on the vehicle, is uh, basically a sensor architecture, meaning you have a sensor pod and uh, you have camera, LiDAR, radar, and uh, long wave IR. So I'll explain those. A camera is exactly what you're used to. It's looking at things, but 0.1% of the time. So if it's really dark somewhere and me, uh, I, Aisha Evans, I'm wearing dark clothes and crossing the street, there's a 0.1% chance that the camera will not see me and therefore the vehicle will run over me. So then you have LiDAR, which emits uh, a light signal. And then uh, when it hits something, it comes back. So LiDAR will tell you something is there and this is roughly the shape. Then radar looks for movement of things. So if I'm moving and crossing the street, it should pick me up. And then you have long wave IR that basically detects heat, meaning something is alive because it's emitting heat. So be careful. So the combination of those four give you basically um, a lot of redundancy and sort of uh, degrees of, uh, of safety. We call it like basically the four or five nines. Now, all this information is constantly being recorded because we see what's going on around us so that we can tell the vehicle what to do. That goes it's what, in what's called a perception engine, meaning how are we perceiving the world and what's around us. Mm -hmm. The output of that perception engine then goes into a prediction engine where basically a bunch of algorithms are running to say, okay, there's a person over there. Are they likely to be moving? Are they stationary? There's a car. Is it going to stay in lane or is it going to switch around? Then all of that, the output of that goes into motion planning, which basically says, given all the information I've received to date, this is the trajectory that the vehicle should take. And then motion control, which is actually activating the vehicle to take that trajectory. So now let's come back to AI. AI is basically a bunch of algorithms. So machine learning is one where we basically look at a bunch of like, let's say a truck or a human. We need to see this and train on many, many, many different images so that every time 
that output comes back, we can recognize this is a person or this is a truck or this is a car. Then all of that is run through uh, neural networks so that we can decide what exactly it was and what what path are we likely to take and then send that through predictions. So that's what we do. Uh, and this is happening constantly. And you also have essentially the equivalent of a server on wheel. In the vehicle, it sits below your feet so that all of that output goes to that server or computer, very, very high performance computer, where then we run these AI algorithms when basically we see, we predict, we uh, pick, a trajectory, and then we move the vehicle, and that's happening constantly. So, so right, and so in layman's terms, uh, for us not like machine learning is just doing something faster when you know what you're looking for, right? AI is it, it is taking all these things and it is determining uh, all kinds of endpoints that were not necessarily programmed into it, right? Is that is that sort Perfect. of the yeah? Perfect. Yeah. And by the way, the math principles behind those are not actually uh, necessarily new. The application right. is new. The really, what's enabled all this is the uh, the advances in computing so that you can take all of this information, crank on it. I mean, I, I call it it's extreme pattern recognition right. and then decision-making algorithms to then uh, get to the endpoints uh, that make sense. And so this is where your philosophy background comes in a little more. I know this is an area I'm fascinated with other people, but people talk about there are some things that have to be programmed, right? The If the car has a choice, if all the inputs come in and the car has a choice between hitting one pedestrian or three pedestrians, like, is that actually a decision that a, a programming team needs to make? Ah, so there, there are several things. First, the, the first thing is safety is foundational to everything we do at Zoox. Yeah. Even in the way we design the vehicle, we think about safety. Uh, we have a, a five-star crash rating for all passengers, for example, whereas in a passenger car today, it's only for two passengers, the two front passengers. Huh. So the, we first have a framework. Like for a general audience, uh, don't hit anything. <laughs> okay? Then if you have to hit something, don't injure anybody. And then if somebody's going to get injured, don't kill anybody. Like you have to keep that in mind all the time. Then, yes, there are times when there are some tough decisions. The first thing is, obviously, where it's just about logic, like one versus three. Well, obviously, that that would be something that would be more programmatic. Uh, Though, again, try to go back to look for all opportunity to hit zero. But then there are some cultural things that uh, are just parametized because there's a certain element of uh, ethics and values, and those can be local. So I'll give you an example. Um, You know, we're not in India and we're not uh, building for India right now. That'll happen hopefully at some point in the future. But, you know, don't touch a cow, right? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you got to add that to the algorithm. <laughs> so, right, would, the dry, is it, would it be, in that case, would the values of that culture say it would be better for the occupants to get injured than the cow to get injured? I don't know. They might, but that's going to be a decision that uh, when it comes to policy, regulatory, that's, we are not going to make that decision. Okay. We are going to follow uh, the local the, regulatory and, uh, and policy. Well, there's uh, cultural. What about cultures of self-sacrifice? Well, that actually I had not thought about. But uh, again, uh, yeah. at the end of the day, we really do not want to be the arbiter of uh, yeah. of ethics and values. And we will encourage also um, local authorities uh, through their policy and regulatory to be very clear in uh, what their expectations are. And if we can meet them, great. And if we can't meet them, we just won't launch in uh, that country. Mm, fascinating. Mm-hmm. But there is some philosophy in here. 
Oh, there's a lot of philosophy. I mean, uh, when when it comes to a lot of people say, oh, you you know, you you have a lot of sensors, and uh, for me, it's really personal because I can use myself as an example. Um, you know, do we want to say that it's okay to kill me uh, 0.1% of the time? I don't, I don't think that's a great idea. So, uh, try very hard to uh, to see me, uh, to detect me, to uh, uh, sense my movement, and to find my heat. And if after that, which is 0.001%, uh, no, 0.001%, you can't yeah. find me, then yeah, then let's have a conversation about you really did the, the best you could. It's not like um, we'll get to uh, zero uh, fatalities. In 2017, entrepreneur John Rampton was frustrated with the available calendar tools, which led him to create calendar.com. Calendar.com allows all of your different calendars to come together in one place. It also has some great features that solve many of the common frustration of team calendars. Smart links with notifications ensure you never need to worry about double booking or no-shows. The Find a Time feature compares everyone's schedules at once, finding the optimum time to meet. No more emailing back and forth trying to find out when everyone is free. And you also get analytics that will give you reports that show how you and your team are spending your time, allowing you to be more efficient. If you're looking to make yourself or your team more efficient this year, head over to calendar.com now to start your 30-day free trial and see the difference for yourself. That's C-A-L-E-N-D-A-R.com. So Amazon bought Zooks for, I think, a billion dollars last year. Is that right? Well, actually, (laughs) hang on a second. Uh, Amazon bought Zooks, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, for over a billion dollars, I'll give you that much. But uh, the the figures that are out there are not correct, are not and Amazon correct. has okay. not disclosed. Uh, yeah, not disclosed. Okay, so those are, those are the rumors I've read. Okay, so so we'll yeah. we'll take those as facts. So what is what is Amazon looking for from Zooks? Is this part of they just see this as a key thing to be involved with, or is it using it for packages? And what what so what's changing and what's staying the same? Everything stays exactly the same, literally. And I know when I say that, I sound yeah. naive because people are like, really? Uh, but we, uh, we've we been part of Amazon for, what, five and a half months now? Uh, so, um, look, the uh, Amazon, first of all, we were proud to be chosen. It's, uh, it's a technology that it is true. I will concede that uh, it's a technology that will intersect a lot of things that Amazon does, no question about it. But the first thing they were looking at is it's a foundational uh, technology that... Uh, uh, allows a vector for growth. When you're a large company like that, uh, and this is something, by the way, that I love about Amazon, you look at the big high-tech companies, uh, not a lot of them have been uh, super successful at creating new multi-billion dollar businesses. And you think of, about Amazon, it's only been, what, 21, 22 years? Let's not forget, it started with books, right? Just to put things in perspective. So, uh, they are looking at this as a growth business. They are looking at this as a, a foundational uh, technology. Uh, they are looking at it as something that is going to affect how people work, live, how infrastructure is built. And uh, that's the primary goal. They also know that people pay more to move themselves than they do uh, to move goods and services. I don't know about you, but I constantly, like I'll order food and I'd be like, I can't believe I have to pay <laughs> Five dollars, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't remember ever complaining about my Uber fare or Lyft fare. Just back to philosophy. Yeah. And so 
we, we are an, a subsidiary. We're super independent. We are in the sense that we have our own system, HR, finance, and so. So it on. hasn't changed the the consumer service that you're in product that you're all. building. Yeah. At all. So, and but I might get free rides with my Prime subscription. Is that potential? Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Maybe in the maybe in the future there are definitely opportunities like that. But first, as I tell everybody, we have to earn it. Let's get the tech. We still have a lot of testing to do. Let's get the technology safe. Let's launch our first city, our second city and earn the opportunity for those collaboration areas with Amazon. And so when do you expect to be sort of fully operational? <laughs> Dang. I, I so sorry for like, being your board member. but I, I'm like, what is going on here? I, I thought I was talking to just, uh, like, I'm getting all the tough questions. Rah, rah, rah. No, I'm teasing. Uh, look, uh, we are not announcing a date. As you know, We okay. this is a technology that is still in development with a lot of testing yes. ahead of us. This is not an industry where you can throw an MVP into the no, marketplace. that's yes. not the way it works. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, absolutely not. So I, I'll take the two, the two extremes. A lot of people are like, well, you know, it's going to take decades. Not true. So it's going to be much sooner than people think, but it's not going to be uh, next year. What surprised you the most or what, what aspect of the role or the, the, what you're doing was more difficult than you expected? Um, patience. <laughs> um, right, you like to get things done. <laughs> yes. And also, if you see that, uh, I mean, when, you know, there are some... Um, when you're going from prototyping to really building uh, a scale a product that can get to market and scale, like hardware software integration, AI or no AI, I mean, those are problems that have been solved already, right? Uh, building company infrastructure and systems, those are problems have been that have been solved already. So just because you know that needs to happen, you also need to meet people where they are at. Uh, you need to take the time to to expose them to this, to make them see the benefit before you you just come in and start making changes. So I would say that patience, rhythm, and cadence were and still are a trait that I've had to exercise way more than I thought. Because you tend to think you're a little naive, right? You're like, well, I'm going to be the CEO, right? I get to decide, right? Yeah. Uh, well, no, that's not the way it works because you you have to take the team along with you. You don't want to turn around and you've created a carnage because you went too fast or too deep and you didn't get buy-in and so on and so forth. It's an interesting question because it, it occurs to me you have a similar to like a drug company where, you know, it could spend money for a decade before knowing, in those cases, a lot of times whether the product will even work, I, I, you know, because until you get to human trials, that's actually a little more scary. But how... Just from advice to other leaders who who are in things, you know, where, you know, without revenue, without customers for a while, like, how do you, how do you orient around success or or KPIs, not knowing how long that, that journey is going to be? So a few things. So first of all, um, when, um, before Zooks, I uh, used the same framework as uh, Mulali. I mean, I borrowed from him about the whole um, being very clear about your dashboards, right? Yeah. So I had, uh, like everybody else, green for on track or, or done, meaning by the time it's on track, it gets off. Uh, yellow for caution, uh, watch it, we may need to do something different. And red for, okay, we have a problem, what do we do? So I added a couple of colors at Zooks, blue for done. And uh, purple for unknown, meaning we don't know how to do it, but we know we have to do something in that space. And it did two things. Kind of like imagine if you're a climber and uh, it's a really, really tough climb. Uh, every time you get to sort of a, a base or rest area, you have to find the energy and fuel and, and willpower to keep climbing, right? The blue gives them always the yeah. opportunity to look down the mountain and see, look at what we've done already. 
Yeah. Then the, the purple sort of calms things down. Yes, we all know we need to do X, Y, Z. We don't quite know how to do it yet. So let's put it on the dashboard. Let's track it and let's start having a conversation about what do we need to do to move that purple to uh, red, yellow, or green. And it gives a sense of calm. The second piece of advice is, yes, you may not know exactly when, but you ought to know what are you doing the next three, six, nine, 12, 24 months. And break that down into milestones and with a clear criteria, uh, what is going, what are the inputs? Everybody focuses on the outputs. This is another thing that uh, is key. What are the inputs? What are the things that have to be true to get to the output? And how do I measure them? And how do I know that it's happening? What mechanisms do I have to look at triggers for since you're inventing and you're innovating, you're going to make mistakes or you're going to make the wrong assumptions. So where you made the decision based on data and you're pretty sure, check. When you, when you make the decision based on, you know, you had enough information to say we're going this way, be very clear with the team that that decision is more like a choice. And these are the things that we're going to monitor to see whether it was the correct choice or not. And then really, really, really work on your culture because the speed at which information travels is the speed at which you're going to execute and get more certitude. An environment of truth and transparency, an an environment of being inquisitive, an environment of being mission-driven, and an environment of putting all, like being very inclusive around the diverse opinions. And by diversity here, I don't mean just race, gender, and what have you. Diversity of experiences, of backgrounds, Uh, different ideas and and really allow for a culture where that thrives and it's not easy when you're you're transitioning to that culture because it you know it's a little messy but those are the three uh three vectors that i would advise somebody to follow that is very good advice and and you alluded this to more you said you're you're an optimist um but i'm curious i'll I'll merge the two things how do you think the pandemic uh, as we come out of it is going to change our relationship with transportation oh Interesting. So first of all, through this pandemic, I found out a lot more about the last one, right? Yeah. Um, in 1918. Yeah. Funny how so, patterns <laughs> repeat themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Now, back to optimism, you know, that pandemic didn't stop us or didn't scare us. We actually forgot about it until we got another one. Yeah. So I think that um, there will be more uh, hybrid uh, work from home and uh, go physically to the office. That's just not going to go away. And yeah. it's going to change a little bit talent dynamics. I mean, I've started sometimes um, hiring folks that I know will not be necessarily uh, moving into the office, but their role allows that and so on. So you're going to see more mental flexibility there. But in general, I think we'll go back to normal. We'll get back in cars. We'll get back in um in mobility on demand, let me put it that way, and eventually autonomy, I think it'll go back to normal. But there are some things like, I don't know if we'll, we'll go all the way to what's happening in Asia, where, for example, masks are part of the culture there, yeah. pandemic or no pandemic. So I'm interested to see whether that's going to continue. They will not be part of the whole culture. That is, <laughs> well, that is we already real. know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you'll see a few more yeah. around. But my, my view is uh, within... I don't know, a few years, we'll go back to normal. This is not a normal state for, for society. All right, Aisha, it's been fascinating to talk with you today. Where, where can people learn more about you and, and your work and your company? Uh, so zooks.com and uh, we're hiring by the way a lot of people <laughs> and not just engineers at all types. And can they uh, wait, wait, can they work from anywhere? 
Well, uh, we can have the conversation. How's that? <laughs> and yeah, so zooks.com is a great uh, place to find us. And then we also have uh, all the normal um, social media platform. So uh, on Twitter, on Instagram, on LinkedIn. Uh, and for me, you can also just, I don't know, I suppose, Google Aisha Evans or find Aisha 2 Evans um, on Twitter. All right. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us. Uh, you've had a, a incredible ride and it sounds like uh, the best is, is yet to come. So I'm very excited to watch what you and the company continue to do. Thank you, Robert. And thank you, by the way, I want to thank you personally for always being there for me when, uh, you know, leadership is lonely uh, <laughs> and there are not that many people that you can trust. And I appreciate that you always pick up the phone when I'm like, Robert, this, 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 that, <laughs> you know, have you thought, have you encountered that? What should I be thinking about? I truly appreciate that. That's a gift. Thank you. Well, well thank you. If you're ever looking for advice from me, right? I mean, I'm, I'm <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm humbled. So thank you. <laughs> Well, to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Aisha and Zook and on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com so you can learn more and apply for your job, as Aisha was clearly looking for. They are, they are growing. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a quick review or rating as it helps new dis- uh, users discover the show. If you're listening to Apple Podcasts, just select the library icon, click on Elevate, scroll down to the bottom, and you can leave a review. Thank you again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the Podcast Princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.